It's a week until our anniversary. It's 80 degrees outside. We all got mics. We're about to get drunk. And we're about to watch the Blues Brothers. Hit it. Hi, welcome everybody. Hi, welcome to the Takes It Took a Movie podcast, and it's kind of a special episode this week. Um, Technically, by the time this is released, the following week will be a one-year anniversary for this podcast, but um, since we release every two weeks, we're kind of making this the one-year anniversary episode. All right, well, uh, before we get into our silly little stinky movie, we've got to talk about some movies that we saw recently. As yes. we normally do, as is convention, as is tradition. Mm-hmm. As like is normal. First? As is regular. I mean, I'll go first just because it was a rewatch for me. Mm. And, uh, you know, everyone's seen it. I watched Cars, Ooh. classic, Lightning McQueen. So good. Which no, one? The first one. No, 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 Miles. Which one? Oh, I was actually about to also say... <laughs> If you had to give if, if one of the I cars a little smooch. A little smooch. Well, more than a, a smooch and a spank, maybe a tickle. <laughs> okay. Ooh. Who would it be? Which one? And you can't pick Sally because that's a basic answer. That is a basic answer. I don't respect Sally. This anyway. is the litmus <laughs> test they give you after you've been convicted of first degree murder to figure <laughs> out whether or not you are insane or not. I, I got to go with my gut. Mm. Red. I knew mm. you were going to say red. Yeah. I felt it in my that bones. That tells me a lot. Yeah, that tells me a lot about you. Mm-hmm. What about you, Stefan? Which uh, car are you, you smooching? If By the way, I ask this to a lot of people. Well, she doesn't ask this exact question, but... It's something along the lines. Something along the lines. <laughs> if Flo were not a taken woman... You don't want to be a homewrecker? No, no, no. Sally's the only other option in terms of women. That's not true. What about uh, Dinoco's wife? Again, a taken, not, a taken I know he's woman. Not named Dinah, but, but but your answer is Flo. Yeah, yeah. My answer is Doc Hudson, a hundred percent, all the way, classic, no question. Classic. In my mind, yeah. Love you, Paul Newman. Anyway, okay, Stefan, what have you seen? What have I seen? Um, I've seen many things, so it's always hard to pin down, you know, which one to talk about. But I'll talk about the um, psychological thriller up there with uh, Memento, you know, Cape Fear. Uh, all sorts of non-traditional, non-linear storytelling that is Boss Baby. Um, this movie... I also it, watched Boss Baby, Boss Baby recently. <laughs> recently. Did you really? Yeah, I did, yeah. This movie is one of the most complex pieces of media you will ever uh, ingest in your entire life, particularly when it concerns the narrator and the reliability of our narrator and whether or not what occurs is real. Because it's very easy to write it off and say, oh, you know, baby core and... Everything that you see is is fake, right? Because it's just the, the kid's imagination. But the parents will specifically talk about things that you think would be in their imagination, like the suit. Oh, when she, so mo- you actually did watch Boss Baby. Yes, I watched Boss Baby <laughs> no. like this week. And there's a bit, because I was watching it, I was like, oh, it's obviously all in the kid's imagination because he's not wearing a suit. And then the kid at one point goes, well, what about the suit he's wearing? And the parents are like, oh, he's just cute or something. A little businessman. Little businessman, I think is what they say. What? What? It doesn't. If it watch this movie and tell me if it's real or not real. I will say too. We watched this um, a couple years ago when we were living in Portland, and discussing the the theories around this movie 
is actually one of the things that inspired making this podcast. I don't know if I've mentioned that before. We just had a very in-depth con- This is so stupid. We were having like a conversation about, yeah, the reliability of the narrator and what this world actually is. And we we're like, oh, that'd be mm. funny to like hear about on a podcast. And thus, the Takes It Duck was born. All right, which baby? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, 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 no. All right, who's next? Uh, Mar- that just leaves me. Mariah. There were a couple that I was deciding between, but I think I'm going to talk about Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. Ooh. Uh, Stefan and I went camping recently, and we went out kind of into a very deserty area, and we pretended to be cowboys for the weekend and mm-hmm. had a great time camping. Yeehaw. And we watched The Wild Bunch as we were camping, and it was just a really good western. And some of the editing is just super fun of the way that they cut the action sequences and the gunfights is it's unique. And the imagery between like the children and the adults is very cool. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. But uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, just extremely well made and very fun, especially while I'm out camping in the desert. So y'all make beans. No, we just made a lot of hot dogs and s'mores. We had a cheddar dog. Best cheddar dogs in my did life. Did you make uh, hobo meals? My life. No, we did not. We no. just kind of stuck with dogs. Cheddar dogs and s'mores is all you need. Anyway, just a very, I don't know, very good memory that nice. it'll stick with me. So, yes. that's a wild bunch. Anyway. Like, uh, I'm sad to be back here in the city. Yeah, boo, hiss. Anyway, those are the movies we watched. And I should say before we get into today's episode, because it's our one year anniversary, we're doing something a little special. We'll have some drinks. So, Disclaimer. Yeah, you may have already noticed. Disclaimer, you're going to hear my thoughts on the Iraq War. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to hear my thoughts on Maximilien Robespierre and the end of the French Revolution. Yeah, don't drink in podcast, kids. Just kidding. Anyway, today we are going to be talking about the 1980 hit cult classic film that is... Hit me. The Blues Brothers... Cue saxophones and trumpets. Before I get into it. Let's do a summary. Miles, you want to start or finish? I'll start. You'll have to remind me all of their names because I only know them as the Blues Brothers. Mm -hmm. But effectively, the smaller of the two Blues Brothers. There's Jake and there's Elwood. How do you... Shorter? Shorter. Okay. Jake. Jake. Played by... Belushi. John Belushi. John Belushi. And the taller one, Elwood, is played by... John Belushi. Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd. Oh, my God. We're on a mission from God. So, Dan Aykroyd, uh, he gets out of Already wrong. What? It's not Dan Aykroyd's character. (laughs) It's John Belushi. John Belushi. Jake. Jake. Okay, Jake and L. Short stature, short name. Jake. All stature, long name. Right, okay. So Jake gets out of prison. Elwood picks up his brother Jake from the police department using a police car, which makes Jake very upset. Uh, And then they go and see the penguin, right? Penguin? Yeah. Who is basically the nun that raised them when they were in foster care. And she tells them that basically, like, oh, we're late on our taxes. The thing is going to close. The church doesn't care about us anymore. Blah, blah, blah. We need to raise $5,000. And the Blues Brothers are like, oh, easy. We can do that. And then she goes, no, you can't. I'm not taking your dirty, dirty thief money, you dirty boys. 
And then she whacks him around a little bit because they keep saying God and shit and fuck. And then they basically decide, okay, we're going to get the band back together. Phineas and Ferb style. Yeah. And they go around and they start picking up people one by one. They go to one place and uh, Elwood orders just bread. He orders toast. He likes toast. And then Jake orders four roast road some chicken chicken just four just chickens four, four fried chickens four fried chickens and a coke and a coke and, a coke. and then Oops. they kind of just go around meeting everybody getting the band back together uh carrie fisher is uh, going around trying to kill them which is really funny to me mm-hmm. she tries <laughs> to blow them up they blow up a <laughs> yeah. building yeah a couple an times. entire building yeah and then they just like stand up and go oh we gotta go but then on their journey, they piss off a bunch of people. Like they piss off Nazis and cops. And whoa, this is where I come in. Oh, okay. Yeah, they start pissing off people like the cops because they drive through a mall and they destroy it. They piss off the Nazis because they drive through their rally. I don't. The Nazis don't really show up until later. Um, yeah, they're very absent throughout most of. And it. then they play at like a Texas Roadhouse kind of thing. Um, but they replace another band, so now the other band is mad at them because they took their spot, so they're also chasing them. So everyone just kind of wants them dead, including uh, Jake's girlfriend. And Who is Carrie Fisher, who's been trying to kill them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they meet up with a guy, I forget who he is, but he's able to set them up with like a big show, a booking for a show at this place, I forget the name of it. Um, so they get the word out. They strap a giant megaphone on the car. They drive around places, tell everyone, Hey, come to a show. And uh, a lot of people go to the show. And then through the show, a guy offers them a record deal for like 10,000. And with that money, they're able to, you know, pay off the, the, the nunnery. Mm-hmm. Then they race on back to what is the building? Some government building where they can pay off it's like the IRS, the money for the, they're going to the Cook County clerk's office yeah. to basically pay off the taxes from the um orphanage mm-hmm. yeah and at that point you know everyone who wants them dead is chasing them and a couple you know the the country singers crash into the water the nazis um fly over a couple of buildings which is i think my favorite part of the entire movie yeah. it's, uh <laughs> it's so funny he goes the they like drive off a bridge and there's this moment where you get the reaction shot of the Nazis and he's just like stunned. He's not scared. Like he's just like I can't like he's it. like I've been cheated. Like he's got this face where it's like this is unfair. Like he's just so flabbergasted by what's <laughs> happening and they're like actually flying through the city and then they plummet to the earth and uh, and one of the Nazis goes, I always loved you. Yeah, and then they're gone. <laughs> it's so funny. And then they make it to the IRS building or whatever, and literally everyone there is out to get them, including the police, the military, and uh, like the National Guard, the SWAT team, anyone you can imagine. Like 500 people show up to try and get them, and they're storming through this building. I'm surprised the building didn't fall over with that many people in it. And then uh, they rough up Spielberg for a little bit. And then they go to jail for all their crimes that they committed. And then they sing Jailhouse Rock, the end. Mm -hmm. And that's... The Blues Brothers. Something to mention. Brothers. We skipped over a couple of things. Something to mention. Blues is in the name, so a lot of the people that they run into are R&B legends. We will get into that. Like Urethra kinda Franklin? Kind of didn't mention that part of it. No, um, I not. wanted to bring up Urethra the, Franklin, but I didn't get The that. problem is I don't know jack shit about He doesn't know yeah, Ray Charles. You're going to learn Sorry. today, Miles. I don't, you don't so, drink more alcohol. I'm on a mission from God. Uh, but yeah, let's get into it. So 
Before the Blues Brothers was a movie, it was a recurring sketch on SNL. In January of 1976, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd accompanied Howard Shore, who was the musical director of SNL at the time, who has gone on to be a fantastic composer. He did Lord of the Rings. He did The Hobbit. He did oh. um, uh, He did Silence of the Lambs. I mean, he's done a lot of stuff. He's great. Oh. Anyway, he was music director of SNL at the time. So they had this sketch where they introduced Howard Shore and his all-bee band. And so they're all dressed up as bees and beekeepers. And John Belushi sings the song, I'm a King Bee. And he dances around and falls down as he sings. Yeah. It's fun. You, it. you, can, you can find it out like on Vimeo and stuff if. online. Uh, anyway, so after this all-bee band bit went out, John Belushi went off to the good state of Oregon to film Animal House. And while he was over there filming, he was shown Ooh. blues music by a man named Curtis Salgado, and he just fell in love with blues. Like for the first time in his life? Um, I think he was like kind of aware of it, but he has a statement somewhere saying that he was just kind of really sick of rock and roll at that moment. Apparently, he was a huge metalhead as well and had like a oh. room in his house that was had like padded walls so he could literally just fucking like go ham and like headbang. Yeah, I know I play the pad walls too, but they don't really let <laughs> Yeah, me. it's also for headbanging. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so he was just kind of sick of that kind of music. And then when he was introduced to blues, he was like, this is where it's at. This may, this makes me feel something. And he spent the entire, like an entire night with Curtis Salgado, where Curtis was just like talking about his love of blues and playing different blues music. And Belushi was really inspired by his love of it. And so... There's uh, the musician Cab Calloway who sings uh, Minnie the Moocher, mm. um, which is like the last musical number when they do it in front of the big audience. Real quick. Yes. Is this a musical? Oh, we're going to talk about that, actually. He opened the can so quick. Yeah. Okay. It's going to go bad. You opened it too early. <laughs> oh, yeah. shit. You got to put it back. It's going to get smelly. Okay, hold on. Yeah. Hold on. Pour, it, pour it into a, like a plastic bag. A oh, plastic yeah, yeah, bag. yeah. Let me put it in the fridge. Cool. We'll come back to that. So, <laughs> anyway, uh, Cab Calloway's character is named Curtis as an homage to Curtis Salgado, who got Belushi into blues. Dan Aykroyd was already a fan of blues at this point. He was super familiar with this band called Downtown Blues Band, which was a Canadian blues band he had occasionally played with because he's Canadian, eh? He's Canadian. So, from a mission from God. So Belushi comes back from filming Animal House, and the Blues Brothers that we know with the fedoras and the sunglasses was born as a, a recurring sketch on SNL. The name is actually thanks to Howard Shore, who just kind of suggested it to them, just kind of off the cuff. And Lorne Michaels, who's the head of SNL, didn't really want to give them airtime just to kind of like do covers of blues music, but they kind of managed to, and it became a hit. There's a making of documentary that you can find on YouTube, and it's also on, like, I think the 25th anniversary DVD of Blues Brothers. But uh, Dan Aykroyd says, back then it was just sort of to explore the music, have a little fun with it, make the audience laugh in the warm-ups, pull off our appearances on Saturday Night Live, and kind of come off to sell these characters. As it evolved, the mission was to reacquaint people or acquaint people for the first time with this tremendous form of American music. I will say I was surprised in the movie with how just genuine music it is like it's just blues music it's not like look at a funny version of a blues song it just is mm -hmm. blues music yeah you know versus and, like a, and a little comedy bit musical yeah, a, little a little bit of country yeah Rawhide. uh but yeah it really just stemmed from a love of blues music and wanting to kind of do covers and play it and kind of have a little bit of funny bits and funny dancing and 
people who she always does like cartwheels and stuff like that. But for the most part, they just loved it. I was highly impressed for such a rotund, rotund and somewhat short man. He is agile. Yeah, he's a like he's, he's like quick a on little, his feet, little ninja man. And I'll get to it later where uh, I think you'll be even more impressed with him and his uh, abilities. Ryan, could you say cut him up? Cut him up. Cut him up. <laughs> anyway, so uh, this re- this recurring bit that they did on SNL kind of started in 1978 later on. And they actually released an album under the Blues Brothers name. And the album is called Briefcase Full of Blues. We actually listened to it on the drive over. And it's basically just uh, covers of blues songs. It was recorded live when they opened for Steve Martin at the Universal Amphitheater in L.A. on September 9th, 1978. God damn. It contains 12 tracks, and again, all just covers of blues songs, and it reached number one on Billboard 200. I never really took, because wow. I know John Belushi's like a comedy legend, and I, I never took him for like also a musician. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm guessing he's doing the singing, right? Yeah, he is. Having watched the SNL bits where he is actually singing. Yeah, he is. He's got a good voice. Yeah. yeah, there's um, a music producer who I, I can't remember his name on the documentary who points out that, yeah, he sings better than some of the artists that were out there at that time. Mm. He was like, yeah, I was impressed. Because basically for the SNL band, that's the band that is in the movie. Those are all the people mm. that they're picking up. It is their okay. band minus the keyboard player on SNL that was Paul Schaefer. But for the movie, it is Murphy Dunn. And then for SNL on the drums, it was Steve Jordan. And in the movie, it's Willie Hall. Mm. But everybody kind of comes back for the movie, and they're like just themselves, basically. Mm. Mm. Um, Dude, the fucking bass player with the pipe goals. There's a music producer who I can't remember his name on on the documentary talking about how when they were assembling this band, they wanted like the best of the best to be a part of it. Everybody thought it was like a joke at first. They're like, Belushi wants to put the band together? Oh, yeah, right. And then it like came together, and they're like, oh shit, this is actually kind of fire. This is kind of cool. <laughs> And um, they got like really talented musicians to be a part of it. And so all the recordings that you hear of the band are actually them. It's, you know, them doing it. Uh, there was a lot that went into the making of the band and this kind of the story behind that. But I really want to get into the movie. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time. But again, pretty much everybody who was in the original SNL band is in the movie except a couple of people. So let's get into the movie. So in 1978, John Belushi was an absolute god of entertainment. This was like the height of his popularity. He had been in a top-grossing film, Animal House, show, SNL, and he had a number one album of 1979, which was The Briefcase Briefcase Full of Blues. So that's when Belushi and Aykroyd thought, hey, why not make this concept a film? And Universal and Paramount Studios wanted in, and there was an intense bidding war, and Universal came out on top just barely, with John Landis set to direct. Now, disclaimer, John Landis is problematic. Mm, yeah, uh, we've talked about him before. John Landis? Uh, he directed you, the Twilight You remember movie? us talking about Twilight the Twilight Zone, Zone movie? movie? I don't remember. Uh, does a helicopter ring a bell? Oh, yeah, 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 So that was a few years later, and um, we're just kind of not going to talk about that for this. It's but important it's to know. Disclaimer, but, he's a bitch. Uh, he's not like maybe a best. Yeah. Anyway. He, 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 yeah, he's not great. I don't. I don't think we need to beat around the bush. He's not a great person. Yeah, but anyway, he he was set to direct this, and um, he had directed Animal House with Belushi the year before over in Oregon, so they knew each other already. At this point, it was still just a concept. There was no script. There's no budget, but they were sure they had a surefire hit on their hands. So how much would it cost? Universal said, "How about twelve million? 
Belushi, Ackroyd, and Landis said, what about $20 million? Oh, my God. Mm. And um, Lou Wasserman, who was the head of Universal, had to settle kind of around the that 17 was the guy. and a half. What I was him? telling Mariah about how um, the guy who wrote RoboCop was in an elevator with John Landis, and it was Lou Wasserman was the guy John Landis was trying to kiss up to. And he was telling him, like, I directed Thriller, like, this is really good business. And then Lou Wasserman was just kind of like, cool. And then he left. Anyway. Anyways. Lou Wasserman settled around $17.5 million, and this was without a script even in place. Uh, that's going to pay for a lot of fake rubble. That's going to pay for <laughs> a lot of a foam lot bricks. Of- yeah. So Dan Aykroyd goes to write a script, but the problem is he's never written a screenplay. He's never read a screenplay, and he can't <laughs> find a writing partner. But he's he's written scripts like for nope. not even for SNL. I mean, I think like sketches are different than a feature. Yeah, uh, well, yeah but there's still a script. Anyway, he had never like really written one before, so he ends up with this 324 page monstrosity that is not in screenplay format. It's more like free verse and concepts, and it contains all the history of the Blues Brothers, which they'd kind of teased in their album of like giving a tiny bit of backstory to the Blues Brothers about, like, Chicago orphanage and stuff. But this fleshed out, fleshed that out a lot more. But yeah, it was kind of, it was relatively incoherent. So he wraps up this 300, again, 324-page That's a thing. lot. So I think we've talked about this before, but a page is roughly a minute. Most scripts are 120-ish. We'll just say 120 ballpark. Yeah. yeah. This, is, this is like two movies put together, yeah. basically. That's like half a book. It's big. 300, well, 300 is sometimes a book. I yeah. guess it could be a book. Yeah. yeah. So um, he, he wraps it in the LA Yellow Pages. It already resembles a phone book, I guess. And uh, he rubber bands it and he names it The Return of the Blues Brothers. And the writer's listed as Scriptatron GL9000 for some reason. <laughs> and um, he, he calls Bob Weiss, who's the producer, and he goes, Be at your property tonight. And Bob Weiss is like, okay. And he goes and he finds this just brick of a script on his doorstep. Like Dune. And he gives it to Landis and goes, fix it, please. And I'm sure Landis probably died a little bit when he saw it, but he took two weeks and kind of made something out of to, it. To do, to cut down 300 something pages in two weeks, that's pretty good. And he did, Landis does credit uh, Ackroyd as just, he had very good ideas and concepts that were easy to communicate onto the page once it was kind of clear what it was right he's just picking out the best stuff basically mm. yeah yeah so now they have a script that's centered around blues music so who better to be in it than actual r&b artists dan Aykroyd kind of just like demanded that james brown aretha franklin cab calloway and ray charles be cast in the movie yes miles miles has his hands up what's r&b rhythm and blues rhythm music. and blues ah. yeah so uh yeah they demanded like these heavy hitters the people that they idolized to be in this and Paramount immediately balked at this because not only would getting these artists potentially be expensive, but a lot of them kind of hadn't done anything in a really long time aside from Ray Charles. So they thought a lot of them weren't even marketable, but they kind of were like, we're not moving on this at all. And Paramount eventually allowed it. So other musicians who appeared at Belushi and Ackroyd's request were Big Walter Horton, Pine Top Perkins, John Lee Hooker, who performs the boom boom scene on the street. And then, kind of like I mentioned with the original band, we have Lulu Marini, Tom Malone, and Alan Rubin, who were the horn players. There, I think at the SNL band there were four horns, but in the movie there's only three. Anyway, 
And kind of like I said, Paul Schaefer, who was originally in the band on SNL, couldn't be in it because of he had contractual obligations and difficulties. And some other non-musical guests in the film are Steve Lawrence, Twiggy, Steven Spielberg, Paul Rubens, John Landis himself, Joe Walsh, who played with the Eagles, Carrie Fisher, and Frank Oz. As for their iconic look of suit, black hat, and sunglasses, Landis said, quote, my wife, who was costume- My wife. <laughs> I was going to do uh, Costume designer, Deborah Nadolman. She uh, designed Jake and Elwood's look on Saturday Night Live, where the characters had become widely known. They had always worn any old hats and sunglasses, but she said, no, Ray-Bans. But they stopped making them, so finding a pair was an epic quest. We'd go into dime stores and search through racks of sunglasses that had been there for 30 years. We ended up with about 140 pairs, and of course, John used to give them to girls. The director, Paul Brickman, visited our set, and we gave him about 30 pairs. He made Risky Business, this was three years later, and Tom Cruise wore those sunglasses. Wait, uh, Ray-Bans weren't being made? They made as, it come, come they were I know out of it, style. Ray-Bans are popping off. At this point, yes, but I guess back then, no. Huh. Yeah. So, um, that's kind of like the pre-production stuff. There's so much that happened on production, so we're just going to kind of dive right in okay do it so production began in july of 1979 in chicago according to landis the script wasn't even done yet and uh, neither was the budget but they just kind of went ahead and the crew was also kind of confused like what are we made is this a musical was it an action comedy what do you guys think is it a musical i i think it's um, definitely in the running to count as a musical i mean it's got i musical segments so i don't i'm not familiar entirely with what the strong definitions of the musical genre are i can't believe you uh that was really good timing it waited until i finished to do that um but it's a movie with a lot of musical segments where they just play music yeah and it's also in a similar musical fashion where like when the we have the urethra franklin scene where they're having sort of a domestic argument and then they break out into music and then they're just watching, which is what a musical would do. Yeah. So like in my book, it's definitely more musical than less musical. Yeah, I would say definitely, I would agree with that. Definitely more musical than less musical. Yeah. Well, John Landis says, quote, it's always frustrated me that many people don't consider this movie a musical, which makes me nuts because it has more music in it than most musicals. Yeah. Damn. And, yeah. and what he kind of talked about is that not only was he doing like the Aretha Franklin uh, number where she does just break out in a song and people start dancing in the, in the um, diner. But Ray Charles' number, people are dancing in the street, all choreographed. Yeah. But then yeah, on, top, right. on top of those kind of breaking into song numbers, he has just basic performance numbers Yeah, where it's um, in movie music that, yeah, they're not breaking into song. It's music that's them, being watched by other people. Like that's, them that's performing on stage. So, yeah. well, but um, you you mentioning specifically, yeah, they have a number where people are choreographed to dance along with the music. That's very musical. Yeah, yeah. So he kind of decided he wanted to take a lot of the different kind of musical performances that are in musicals and incorporate them in. Yeah. Um. And the director of photography, Stephen M. Katz, also said that classic Hollywood musicals was a huge inspiration on how he framed and shot the movie to begin with. So, um, I right. think I consider this a musical. So. Maybe uh, maybe I like musicals. I would. Probably gonna be one of the highest what? rated musicals of all fucking time for me. But nice. that's that's what I said before when we discussed musicals. Is I like musicals where well, first of all, if it's like normal music, sorry musicals, but if it's normal music like blues or rock or something where it's like not weird, sing songy. If it ain't hairspray or grease, uh, you know. Well, I love those. I think uh -oh. those are. I think those are okay. But I like don't. something like this where it's like. 
just like rock music and stuff and a lot of them are them just performing for people like it works i think i think it's good i think for people who don't like musicals yes it becomes a much more easily digestible form of musical yeah it's not going number three to one your time has come okay so we've established it's a musical it's a musical yeah it's a musical I'm so oh i never got if, my can out of the fridge the bit we set up earlier about me, I opened, I cracked it open too fast. Oh, you're right. It's whatever. It's Ooh. fine. It's, yeah, it's, it's fine that you don't have a photogenic memory for every bit that we do. Sorry. Anyway, they're into filming, and the first month has gone pretty smoothly, but after that, it was all downhill, baby. Um, Ooh, the main like reason- kid on his bike. Yeah, the main reason uh, was John Belushi- it's starting to wobble. Oh, that's how you know it's you bad. You get in the speed, <laughs> wobbles. The speed wobbles, dude. If you've ever skate like skateboarded, yeah, and you get the, you get the wobbles, wobbles oh, you're yeah. fucking toast. You're so gone. Oh my god, your life flashes before your yeah. eyes. All it takes is like one centimeter large pebble in your <laughs> you're oh fucking gone. Anyway, yes, first month of filming, pretty good. After that, not so good. Oh. And like I said, the main reason was John Belushi. Oh, oh, really? Oh, Ooh. I mean, we can't blame it all on him. The Belushter. Um, John Belushi was well known for his unfortunate cocaine addiction. Which, okay. The man liked um, his hard drug. <laughs> yes. And he would die from a combination of heroin and cocaine two years later in 1982. Two years later? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, my um, God. I knew he died. I didn't know how he died. Y- yep. Speedball. Yep. So Ackroyd also used it, but far less, and stated that part of the film's budget was actually designated to cocaine. Sorry, I said that really weird. Cocaine. Cocaine. The cocaine. The cocaine budget. Specifically for the night shoots. Hey, John Landis, I need to talk to you about the cocaine budget. I'm on a mission from God. I'm on a mission from God. God gave us cocaine for a reason. Uh, Ackroyd said, quote, everyone did it, including me, never to excess and not ever to where I wanted to buy it or have it. But John, he just loved what it did. It sort of brought him alive at night. That superpower feeling where you start to talk and converse and figure you can solve all the world's problems. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel right now. So, on top of that, Belushi would also just, like, disappear from set or show up incredibly late since he was always out partying and doing drugs. Because he was from Chicago, he would go out to, like, his favorite places. Because this was at the height of his popularity, everybody knew who John Belushi was. And everybody would recognize him and try to give him coke. All right. Mm. Um, John- I want to be that famous. I know. I was about to say, I want to be so famous. People are like, oh, my God. Oh, you're from the fucking... You're that one guy from uh, the, 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 the podcast. The podcast. <laughs> not... Not Stefan, not Mariah. Oh, fuck. What's your name? Uh, but I know you're from it. Miles. Yeah. Miles. Oh, you want some Coke? You man? want a speedball? That's what it's like to be uh, at a petting zoo. <laughs> An animal at a petting zoo. People show up and give you food, and you're like, oh. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> John Landis once went into Belushi's trailer and saw what he described as a mountain of cocaine. Oh, my God. Or a Scarface. He actually compared it to Scarface. Scarface. Yeah. yeah. And he flushed it down the toilet and Belushi saw what he did and they had this huge fight. Some say that like punches were thrown. Others say there wasn't. So I don't know. But basically Belushi broke down crying and Landis was like, this is going to kill you, dude. Like you need to stop. And mm. um, he said, Landis said, for me, the biggest tragedy is that an animal house, he was there 100% for me and himself in the Blues Brothers at the best moments. He's there 75%. He's great. So most people don't notice. Mm. Um, and also part of the reason Belushi did so much cocaine is he felt like he needed to for this role he felt 
he needed to to get the performance he thought he wanted, I right. guess. But okay, so Dan Aykroyd, yes, is like I've seen him on Animal House. I've seen him at a hundred percent. There's John Landis. Who's John Landis, the director. Uh, John Landis. Yeah, I've seen him at a hundred percent, not doing cocaine. Mm-hmm. Coming I'm, here, I mean, to well, be honest, he, less he, cocaine. He was probably yeah, he was probably yeah. doing it yeah. for yeah. Animal House too. And but like the idea of like. Being able to see someone degrade into addiction must fucking suck. Yes. Ackroyd once said that one time Belushi just wandered off set and they were like, where the hell did he go? And they tried to like find him and they were just kind of like, oh, he went into this neighborhood and they were like knocking on doors. And this guy's like, oh yeah, he, he went in and he said, I'm John Belushi. I'm tired and I'm hungry. And he went in, he made himself a sandwich and he passed out on the couch. All right. And so mm. the guy's like, oh yeah, he's like right here. And Ackroyd called him, quote, America's guest. Um, the guitarist Steve Cropper said, quote, he was like a big child, everybody, everybody's teddy bear. He just wanted to keep the party going. He was afraid that if he went to sleep, he'd never wake up. Oh. Which is depressing oh, as hell. That is really depressing. Which people also just kind of said, in general, if he considered you his friend, he would like do anything in the world to protect you. Like, Damn. if you were his friend, he was there for you through thick and thin no matter what. Also, I want to remark... On a previous, uh, just obligatory callback, on a previous episode on Reservoir Dogs, I talk about Lawrence Tierney, mm-hmm. who is also described as the cast as a big teddy bear. Yeah. So now I'm kind of alarmed with people described as big teddy bears. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> so on top of all of this, they did have this club that they kind of built for everybody on production, and they called it the Blues Club. So Ooh. it was kind of like their own private club that they could go to, which basically meant you could just get like any drug you wanted. Damn. Like you could go Opium? in and the bartenders Insulin? and their waitresses like would just like give you kind of whatever. They got Tylenol there? <laughs> Probably. Um, all that being said, Chicago loved having this production here. Stanley Korshak, who, whose father was Sidney Korshak, who was a Chicago mobster and a, quote, Hollywood fixer, was Ooh. pals not only with Lou Wasserman, again, who was the head of Universal, but also... Chicago's mayor. If someone calls you a fixer, if someone calls you a fixer, you've probably you've worked on an AC unit or two. Someone and wink, also wink. fixed their AC unit. If you're a fixer, you've probably fixed a squeaky belt on an engine. <laughs> wink, wink. Now you've this, probably <laughs> given me a prostate. Um, this movie also was a really big deal because the former mayor, Richard J. Daly, was super against filming in Chicago of any kind. <gasps> Um, in 1959, there was an episode of an anime noise. Reaction, <laughs> just a reaction. So, like I was saying, in 1959, there was an episode of the M Squad that showed a police officer from Chicago taking a bribe, and after that, he was like, oh, we, no, "No filming, no, we can't, no." no. So um, he just like banned all filming production. But the mayor who came after him, Jane Byrne, reversed that decision and let them film. Again, everyone knew who Belushi was at this point, and because he was from Chicago and loved Chicago. They loved him. Um, someone commented that he could hail cop cars as taxis and just they would take him wherever what he wanted to go. Fuck? Yeah, he would just be like, hey, can you take me here? Everybody wanted to mm. meet him. Everyone wanted to be with him. Everyone wanted to hang out with Don't him. Don't cop cars have to take you home if you go like, hey, I'm drunk. Can you take me? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if they have to, but Life they hack. might be inclined to. Orange whip? Orange whip? Orange whip? Three orange whips. Orange whip. Three Sorry, lashings. We just, we three lashings t- on the back of orange whip. We just took a little alcohol break, so we're back. Well, and AC break. And it meat stick break. Is it, it I got very, meat in my mouth. It's very, very quick flip break where we all 
went to the church of flips and we jumped up and feet <laughs> in the air and we did flips. And James Brown was the <laughs> and minister. James Brown was there and he was singing and we all went, the band. And We're on a mission from God. We're on a mission from God. Like I mentioned, yeah, the first month went by okay, but for all reasons that I just mentioned above about, um, you know, the cocaine, it really started slowing <laughs> yeah, down. Yeah, that, that'll do it. <laughs> the cocaine? The cocaine. Uh, Ned Tannen, who was the executive who greenlit the project without actually telling Lou Wasserman about it first, <laughs> said, quote, you go in thinking, this is going to be great. About the 20th day in, you think, this is the worst piece of garbage out of hell. No one will see this. I'm going to be assassinated for making it. Oh, my God. So Lou Wasserman was having a heart attack watching the budget increase with every delay. Again, mostly related to John Belushi. Again, they kind of settled on a final budget of about $17.5 million. And about a month into production, he joked, quote, I think we've spent that already. <laughs> so Lou Wasserman is yelling at Ned Tannen, who is yelling at Sean Daniel, who is another studio exec, who yells at Landis, who wants to be yelling at Belushi. Just frustration all around. And Landis said, quote, John was fucked up. It became a battle to keep him alive and to keep him working on the movie. Again, just mm, so incredibly sad. Really sad. Yeah. And um, when Carrie Fisher came to set, who she was dating Dan Aykroyd at the time. Who also well, had a very rough time with drugs, drugs later later on. This was kind of before her own addiction. Um, Landis told her, for God's sake, if you see John doing drugs, stop him. And um, But unfortunately, because Belushi was the main problem, they didn't really have many options to replace or double him because he was one of the leads of the film they couldn't wait for him to go to rehab so they just kind of had to push through and hope that he would make it through so do you have more details on specifically what the issues with him doing drugs was besides him just doing drugs and like crashing people's houses and stuff like was he just like well yeah he would leave set yeah he would just like yeah he would just disappear and stuff yeah basically he just was like extremely unreliable where they'd be like ready to do a shot and then he just like wouldn't be there okay so then they'd have to wait and find him like two hours later and again they've just wasted two hours so it was Which, constant delays like that. Like two hours in film is... Is a lot. It's a lot of money. Here. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. So we're going to kind of take a break from all the cocaine stuff. The and we're going to talk about the music. Because after all, as we decided, it's a musical. They're in Chicago. A man named Carlton Johnson was hired as choreographer for the music numbers. And he kind of just decided to embrace the fact that Belushi, Ackroyd, and their band members were not actual dancers. And they used mostly amateurs for the backup dancers as well. So the Ray Charles number, the Shake Your Tail Feather, it was all shot with amateurs, which is very impressive That's because nice. they're out on the street. <clears throat> and if you notice, there's even people like in the background on like the train platform above that are dancing. Mm -hmm. So it's like a lot of people doing it. And none of them are professional, which, yeah, very impressive. Yeah, this movie's all about a lot of people. Yeah. It was also fall in Chicago at this point. Again, they started like later. So it was freezing. And if they weren't on camera, there's footage of people just like wrapped in blankets because it was 25 degrees out. But on camera, obviously, they're pretending it's summer. So they're in short sleeves and shorts and pants and stuff like that. Classic. She was cold. Stuff. Yeah. I'd rather be hitting the twist and the mashed potato in cold weather than hot weather. Sister. <laughs> um... They also had a really hard time making Aretha Franklin's lip syncing look real because so many R&B artists never sing a song the same way twice. They oh. they switch it up. That's stupid. Yeah, <laughs> R&B, you fucking suck. 
I need uniformity. I want to go to McDonald's. I want to get the same burger every time. I want processed. I want chemicals. I want Red 40 and everything I eat. I want Taylor Swift lip syncing her own songs on stage because she can't be trusted. I'm gonna get a lot of fucking flame. A lot of a lot of white women. I don't think that's our demographic. <laughs> anyway, so if you notice, her scene is made up a lot of like really quick cuts because they just had to use a bunch of different takes because she never really quite matched the lip syncing because she always was kind of changing her performance. This is the you better diner? think. Right. Okay. Think about what you're trying to do to me. Think, think, yeah. Think. Um, I, I love her. She's amazing. She gets done dirty in the movie, in my I opinion. Was, okay, I was talking to Stefan about this when the number ended, and he, and her husband Matt, who is the guitarist, bassist, something. Yeah. Anyway, and he like gives her the apron and like walks out. I'm like, yeah, it's temporary because he's gonna go like get yeah, the, the band back together and like raise this money. But she's got to do that diner all by herself now. Yeah, and like they're married. Yeah, that and like that's a huge no. It's a lot. Yeah, like that's insane. It's also a classic movie trope of. They do not communicate well at all. Mm-mm. Like they, you know, like th- that whole number could have been avoided if they just like talked to each other plainly and like figured out rules and you know but things that they need. Films to do. thrive on people making the wrong decisions. Yeah. So. Anyway, well, if you yeah. want marriage counseling, just uh, hit us up. <laughs> the takes um, it took at gmail.com. <laughs> mm-hmm. takes took the takes it took to have a happy marriage at gmail.com. <laughs> um. But anyway, so yeah, they had a lot of problems with Aretha Franklin because basically she's just like too good at being an R&B singer to be strapped down and uh, do lip syncing. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, also, Mariah. Oh, Stephen. Oh, you? Yeah. <laughs> From across the bar. Do you have something else you could tell me about that scene? I was about to say that. Oh, oh my goodness. Something maybe about a, hmm, mm. a saxophone player. <laughs> a saxophone player. <laughs> yes. If you notice... In the diner scene, there's kind of like a wide master shot where the saxophone player is standing on the counter and his head is like cut off. Mm-hmm. Miles, did you notice that? I did. In the frame. It, his head is not <laughs> actually cut off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, not, cut he's off. not what he's us not. artists call a cephalophore. His his head is cut off in the uh-huh. frame. So yeah, they, they framed it extremely strangely. And it's because John Landis thought it was funny. Which is the best reason. All right, all right. Which is the best reason. Uh, John Landis, all his fault and everything we could go over, I think that's funny as hell. He 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 says, like, I was doing bits that I only thought was funny and I was okay with that. That's basically. what I do. That's why I say <laughs> half the things I say. And, and he was like, oh, it's goofy looking at this. You just see the saxophone, not the player. So I'm going to keep the frame exactly like this. And then um, the saxophone player was extremely upset about that. That's I was like, the not what the funny hell, part. man? Like, I, I learned this choreography. I learned how to play uh-huh. and dance at the same time for this. And you can't even see my goddamn face. Uh, I think the bit of man too tall can't see head is good. And that was Blue Lou Marini, by the way. I, um, but yeah, he, he was upset. Good shout out. But um, it, it's weird how much it stands out for being in the background of like a shot. But after it came out, too, there were people that criticized it, and they criticized the cinematographer and the editor for choosing these shots. <laughs> and they basically were like, I don't know why I'm getting flack for this, because like, John oh, Landis wanted no, this. John Landis, it's not my fault. I understand. I get it. I get it. I understand. Anyway. I understand. John so John Landis, Landis thought it was funny. I don't understand. <laughs> and that's oh, why it's in it. this is the second time he's cut someone's head off. <laughs> Wait, what? 
Oh no! I had to do it. No! I had to do it. Oh my god! I had to do it. I don't know whether to keep that in or not. Oh, you can cut it out, but I had to do it. No, I realized, that's, that's really good. I, I realized it. it. I had to do it. I think you should keep it. If you're interested, just look up John Landis' Twilight Zone movie, and you this will would, know what we're This would about. technically be the first time. This was before. <laughs> this is before yeah. all that. Anyway. Yeah. It okay. Was practice. Okay. Okay. Back on track, boys. Back on track. So we were talking about Aretha Franklin, lip syncing and stuff. So R&B singers have a tendency to kind of like ad lib and make the rhythm their own with each take. And so James Brown actually had the exact same issue where he kind of like wasn't able to lip sync very well. And so they decided to at that point, because they filmed this part in L.A. after they were done in Chicago, they decided to have the choir that's in the background as playback so that was all pre-recorded but then he's actually singing live so that way they don't even have to attempt to try to match the lip sync Hmm. john lee hooker who again does the boom boom number on the street (laughs) 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 he he also is singing live in it but boom boom on my ha ha (laughs) till i um but Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, and the, all the Blues Brothers numbers are playback. So those are all lip syncing. But um, yeah, John Lee Hooker and James Brown are singing live in it. As Miles mentioned as we were uh, stopping the recording and you didn't hear it. And drinking. There are a lot of car crashes in this movie. Yeah. A lot of cars. A lot of cars. Um, a lot of, um, a lot of it, speed. Fast and furious-esque cars. Yes. More, furiously more fast More fast cars. and more furious. Um, it actually held the record for the most cars destroyed in the course of production at 103. I heard about crap. that. But um, it was broken two years later with the movie The Junk Man, which destroyed 150. And then for the sequel, which I will talk about later on. Is the Blues Brothers sequel? Yes, we don't need to talk about it that um, much. Okay. But they destroyed specifically 104 to just destroy one more than mm. they did for this movie. Oh, because John Belushi um, is probably not in the second one, is he? Yeah. Yeah, and in our summary we didn't really discuss like some of the chases and the crashes. Yeah, there's like a bit where like I don't know, 20 cars just like pile up on each yeah. other in like a ditch. The Chicago Police Department is chasing after the Bluesmobile and it's a very high-speed mm. chase and a lot of the cop cars crash into each other. Okay, so in Chicago, again, they they shot the majority of this in Chicago. Chicago. They, they would um shoot on weekends. They would have, like, cops and PAs basically on every alley, every intersection, basically making sure the path was clear to do these high-speed chases. So there is one high-speed chase in Chicago that isn't sped up at all. They're going about 110 miles per hour. What the fuck? When they're doing that end sequence where they're racing through Chicago, it is intense. That is really impressive. Like, there's a couple of shots you can tell are, like, sped up, like, earlier, I think, before they're in Chicago. No, there's there's one shot... Before they do the like twenty car pile up that is sped up, I guarantee you it's okay. sped up by a little bit. Okay, but not when they're in Chicago. Landis was actually afraid that people would think that he cheated and sped up the footage, so he actually sh- reshot a shot or two to incorporate pedestrians into it, so you could see that it's not sped up at all. So they're mm. going 110, 120 miles per hour through Chicago, and they basically got permission from the city to do like one or two takes, so they like had to nail it. Damn, um, and they did. Um, That's pretty cool. I mentioned the former mayor of Chicago, Richard J. Daly, earlier, who would not have allowed them to film. So there is a Daly Plaza named after him, and miraculously, they got permission to film there. So the Bluesmobile like drives through that state office building, 
right past a Richard R. Daly sign, which I think is just like very funny. It's not like necessarily like an FU middle finger kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. But oh, it no, is very funny that like this man would have hated it so much F if you, he was around to see it. FU, piss on your grave. Shit on your dog. <laughs> Marry your wife. Your Go kids the, love me more. Colonize Mars. I'm going to get some water. Um, they They had diagrams of the city to kind of plan out exactly where they were going to go and how fast they were going to go and what they needed to block off mm. and all that kind of so stuff. So what you're telling me is Blues Brothers was a facade for them to rob the Chicago bank, and that's how they got the diagrams of the city. There was burglary involved, but we're, get, we're going really? to get to that in about like five minutes. <laughs> how in the world? Okay. So um, towards the end of the movie, when again, like the National Guard, all the police, like the mounted police, like everybody is going after them. So they had to figure out exactly where everybody was going to come in and how this was going to go because they shut down. <laughs> Bro lost his composure. Because they had to figure out exactly where everyone was going to go for this because there were so many extras used for this. They had over 500 extras for that final scene. That, Holy shit. I, I don't know how many people you guys have seen in your life but 500 is a lot of people in one place they had 200 national guardsmen 100 state and city police officers 15 horses for the mounted police three sherman tanks helicopters and fire engines wait, along with civil stunt civilians wait so were, were these actual military personnel i you know what i'm realizing i don't know I'm if that's sure. what they did but i'm realizing that would be the easiest way i, I would assume because you so. wouldn't have to get the uniforms exactly and stuff. like they would already have them yeah. so that would be the best way to do it i'm, I'm guessing but I, I honestly i wasn't able to find that exact okay, okay. information but because they used all of this like legitimate gear i would assume that they just used the that, personnel that, for that it would definitely be the best way to do it yeah so i wouldn't trust some fucking extra to be piloting a sherman tank yeah, uh, yeah. That's a yeah, because like on um, Transformers, they used military personnel, and they're like, it's great because they're already trained with like firearms and firearm safety, so like they know what they're doing, so we don't have to worry about like extras trying to like shoot each other, Speaking as extras do. If you see an extra on a film set, give them a kick for me. Yeah. <laughs> There's also footage of Landis almost like militarily shouting at the people, the extras, whether they were actual military or not. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's yelling through a megaphone, like, faster, faster, faster. Come on, more aggressive. Which oh. is funny, because also there's that whole unit that's going, hut, 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 oh, hut. That was funny. Yeah, there's a bit where there's like a, yeah, some sort of special forces team, and they just keep saying hut. Yeah. And my favorite bit was like the one lone guy rappelling down the building saying hut to himself. <laughs> yeah. He's just going like, hut, 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 hut. Just under his breath. Yeah. It's very funny. Also relating to cars. After the concert, the state troopers chased the Blues Brothers back to Chicago, and the scene where a bunch of the troopers' car crash off the highway was filmed at a closed section of the Illinois State Highway 53 in Palatine, Illinois, but they also had a bunch of trouble getting the cars to like flip over and do what they want, mm-hmm. so they had to like dig a hole so like the cars would hit it right and like flip over. When the Bluesmobile flies through the air, after it like go, starts to go off the bridge backwards, or after it starts to go off the bridge and, and they break and then they go flip. backwards. And it they, does a flip It flips backwards. backwards. It does a backflip. And then after the backflip, it's heading in the opposite direction. Do you know what that was, Stefan? It was a four and a half foot miniature that- Ooh. Oh, a mini-utcher? Yeah. That That's what I call my- so they were having a lot of trouble trying to get it to look right. 
And eventually what they did is they just had the special effects guys just like yeet it into there. They just had them throw it. The miniature? Yeah. Okay. And and it managed to look good. Which leads into my favorite part where the Nazis fly off the bridge and they <laughs> yeah. don't go down. They, they go, go up. They, go they, up. F- they soar over the buildings. Which is interesting because the FAA was concerned that when the car fell, it would kind of move a little bit and not hit its oh. intended target. Yeah. And so they had to do tests of dropping like the station wagons from a helicopter mm-hmm. to prove that like- Oh, oh look, it was dropped from a helicopter? Yep. Yeah. They had to prove that it could hit its mark without like straying and like possibly injuring somebody or like a building or something like that. That's a big stunt. Uh yeah. So in a city, yeah. If you were like doing that in a field somewhere, I'd be like, okay. So they they used a plant that you know like the salt that they use like when there's a snowstorm and stuff like that? Yes. yes. So they used a site that like distributed that salt, but because it was summer that they, they didn't have any salt, so it was like completely empty. So they used that as like test spots. To prove, like, hey, look, it's not going to fly. <laughs> it's not going to move. It's going to hit this X right here, this 50 by 50, like, target that we have for it. And the FAA went, great, so this car can't fly. And they said, yes, this car can't fly. It'll just drop like a rock. And they went, cool. And so then for the stunt, they brought it up on a helicopter and dropped them on the bar. Where did they, where did they, do you know where they did it? Because Chicago? In Chicago. No, 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 because no, 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 it goes through the floor. Oh, oh that yeah, I'm, I'm, I think that that might be miniature. I'm not uh, sure. Yeah, oh, okay. I, I would bet my money because it goes through like the pavement. I would yeah. so I'm pretty my sure money that's a miniature. miniature. Okay, yeah. Um, would, you would I, bet your mother's soul. I would bet my eternal my soul. mother's non-eternal soul. Oh, okay. Okay, so now we're gonna talk about the mall scene. The mall scene, because there is a lot that went if into we it. We didn't explain well enough. There's a bit where. Jake and Elle would get pulled over by the cops because they run a red light and then they find out he's got like 156 outstanding like parking warrants or something. And so they chase him and then they he just they say, screw it, we're going to go to a mall. And then they uh, crash through a mall. Crash through a mall and just cause other havoc inside the mall. That's one point. Out. He goes, oh man, I haven't gotten pulled over in like six months. As if six months is some amazing feat. It For is. him, it sounds like it is. These I haven't had to shoot a cop in a uh, traffic stop in a long time. So they shot the mall sequence in Dixie Square Mall in Harvey, Illinois. It was already an abandoned mall. It had been abandoned mm. for like about a year, which in the documentary, the making of documentary, they basically were like, yeah, this was a stroke of luck that we found this location. We needed a mall. We found it. It was abandoned so we could dress it up however the fuck we wanted. Yeah, it was just perfect. And they knew that this would not happen again. So if you remember, they, they drive through the parking lot before they go into the mall. Mm-hmm. And they're like, this isn't the freeway. Well, remember how I said it was abandoned? So what are all those cars? I'll tell you, they were all brand new cars that they got from like dealerships. Damn. And so Landis is directing the scene where they're weaving in and out of these aisles, these like parking aisles, and they're like, oh, God, please do not hit any of these brand new dealership cars. That's rather stressful. But if anything happens, John Belushi can just pay him with cocaine. Fact. Anyway, so inside the mall, the production designer, John Lloyd, redressed a bunch of these old empty stores with decorations and kind of like breakaway stalls, breakaway walls for the Bluesmobile to drive through. They also had companies come in and help basically 
get just product placement. Yeah. So there's like a lot like of product placement if you notice that. Them when they're like, they're calling out the other stores like, yeah. what was the one that's like defunct now? Or Toys R Us? No, it was there's like, like a Suzuki. Radio Shack. It was like a clothing store. It was like supply or outpost. Outpost 21 or something like that. Anyway, Forever so... Forever 21 is still hot, and I shop there all the time. I am my Forever tank tops. 21. So they, they had all these, like, businesses come in and kind of give them material. So there was kind of, like, a list of stalls that they could not hit <laughs> under any circumstances because it had actual merchandise. And then they had um, stalls that they could hit. And they kind of had this deal with suppliers that whatever they didn't break on set, they could return for free. So they were like, we're going to try to break kind of as little as possible, but like, we'll do whatever we want. I wonder how well that went. So they hired a bunch of guards to protect all of the merchandise because there's a lot in there and there's a lot of extras. There's like a lot of people just walking around this mall unchecked. And then they found out that the guards were the ones that were robbing the place. No. <laughs> the guards were the ones that were like shoplifting. <laughs> it's, oh. it's almost like if you give someone a lot of unchecked power... <gasps> they abuse it. Absolute power <gasps> corrupts absolutely. So then they had to hire guards to watch the first guards. That's to make sure fucking they didn't funny. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, and there's a, there's um, a video from on set where Sean Daniels, who he's one of the execs that I mentioned a little while ago. Yeah, he's on the phone with Lou Wasserman, and he says, "Quote, yeah, yeah, well, we did run over, but the footage is going to be excellent. I can tell you, it's movie history." No, no, I know. In the sequence, we're gonna we're gonna be two days out, so like two days over. It'll all be on the screen, I promise. Which one of the things in film is like, if you're spending money, you want to make sure you see that money on the frame, yeah, like on screen to prove that like it's worth it, yeah. And he's like, "Don't worry, <laughs> you see it, e- e- yeah, yeah." There's not a question for anyone who hasn't watched the movie. Watch it. It's good. But there's bits where they 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 go they're like hit like one of those mall stands and they're just doing like donuts. Like, there's two cop cars just, like, doing donuts around each other, just, like, tearing things up, and they're just crashing through walls. They hit stuff. They blunder around. They're just going in circles. A cop car flips upside down and spins around in a circle, upside down. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. And then, um, so, again, they're filming in the fall of 1979. So, in December of 1981, the local school district tried to sue Universal for $87,000 because they did not return them all to its original condition. It left it kind of just like fucked up. Oh, but oh, we're so sorry. We left this abandoned mall a little fucked up. But uh, nothing ever came to that. It sounds like, and then the mall permanently cl- permanently closed. And then in 2012, it was finally demolished. Quick question: Favorite Miles. movie mall? Favorite movie mall? Favorite movie mall? Probably uh, Chopping Mall which is a 80s horror movie where the security robots go crazy and they kill people. And Dick Miller is there. Ha. And he gets electrocuted and he dies. They also shoot a lady's head off. It's kind of edgy. I, I think I might go with it. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. There's a sequence in the mall where like Napoleon is like yeah. eating a huge sundae and Beethoven is messing around with like the keyboard in a music store. It's pretty I'm, fun. I'm going with Jackie Chan. Uh, oh, I cannot myself. believe I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah that's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, I even I even was the one who covered that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. It's going. So they planned on wrapping in Chicago around mid September, um, but like I said, because of all the delays, didn't happen. They shot well into October before returning to LA to kind of finish the movie. 
So once in LA, they kind of managed to get more or less back on track. And this is where they filmed most of the numbers with the musicians. And because Belushi was such a fan of them and kind of like the reason they were doing this, he kind of didn't mess around as much. Um, So they shot the James Brown church number in LA and Landis decided like, oh, hey, remember how in Chicago with Aretha Franklin and the Ray Charles, the Ray Charles number, how we had amateur dancers and it kind of looked okay. Maybe we should hire professional dancers. So there's professional dancers obviously like doing flips and stuff in there. And I'm going to go back about Belushi for a second. Like I said, Belushi sobered up a little bit. A man named Smokey Wendell, who had previously been a bodyguard for Richard Nixon. Oh, and, um, the Richard Nixon bodyguard glow up. Yeah, yeah well, he should have bodyguard uh, the hotel. <laughs> mm. Watergate. So Watergate he, joke. He was actually hired to keep cocaine away from John Belushi. And he said, quote, every blue collar Joe wants his John Belushi story. Every one of those guys wants to tell his friends, I did blow with Belushi. Which, again, kind of just fucked up. Kind of sad. Yeah. yeah. And um, Belushi even told him, quote, if I don't do something now, I'll be dead in a year or two. Again, kind of. Oh, it, no. Yeah. Uh, I said it kind of as a joke, but it's like recalling my petting zoo allegory of people just like, like the man is. Oh, re- I want to do. Res- I want to do cocaine with John Belushi. Okay, he's here. I'm going to give him cocaine. Like it just yeah. eats his yeah. addiction. Yeah, it's yeah. very sad. Landis did mention one time in LA though, like they, I think they were filming the James Brown number, and he got into a huge fight with Belushi about drugs, and they were like by the side of a road, and Belushi was kind of like f you, like f this, I don't need you, and then he stuck his thumb out, and Landis was like, what are you doing, dude? And then a car going the opposite direction did a Yui and was like. Oh my God, it's John Belushi, man. And there's like a teen or something. Yeah. And then Belushi hops in and is like, take me to this hotel. And the guy's like, okay. And they just drove off. And Landis was like, what the hell? So they lost him for the day. And he's like, I was furious in the moment, but I thought it was hilarious afterwards <sighs> that this he threw his thumb out like and almost jokingly. And then immediately a car like picked Which him up. Which is funny because we used to, okay, you can cut this out. Uh, we used to live in a place where John Belushi's like cousin or brother. Brother. You lived by us. And I remember someone mentioned that to me, and I was like, I don't know who that is. I don't know who John Belushi is. I don't get it. I don't know why everyone's so hyped about him. But now I understand. I get it. Yeah. Anyway, so back in LA, they finished the James Brown number, which again, he sings live, which is fun. And then they shot the final songs like on the stage performance at the Hollywood Palladium in LA. Oh, I've been there. Yeah. Palladium is a element. And that is your science Wait, I'm sorry. What was shot there? The, the final numbers of like Minnie the Moocher and the, the final. Was that the Palladium? Yeah. Oh, man. I didn't even realize. I, I, I see it now. I can't believe I didn't pick that up before. Anyway, so the Minnie the Moocher number required, well, I guess, and like the regular Loose Brothers performance, it required this radio call out to get extras. And when they showed up, they kind of kept them entertained by doing giveaways and having DJs come in and like do kind of sets for them in between takes. And then right before filming that number, John Belushi sees a kid riding a skateboard and he's like, I bet I can do that. Spoiler alert, he could not do that. Mm. And um, he injured his knee to the point that production was very nearly stopped. They thought they were going to have to postpone production. But then Wasserman (laughs) calls up like one of the top doctors in L.A. and convinces him to postpone his vacation for the weekend to go run out and inject Belushi's knee with like anesthetics to like help the pain. And they send Belushi out to do the sequence where he's dancing around, doing cartwheels, and just living it up. 
and he's doing all of that on a bum knee. That's impressive. Which you can kind of tell because after they escape through like the trap door and run through the tunnel, he's limping, if you notice. Mm. Wow. The fucking shit you can do if you have John Belushi on your cast. Mm-hmm. Do you guys remember how I said that the budget was $17.5 million? Yes. So by the end, it was actually $27.5 million. Oh That's a couple more dollars. Which yeah. is the equivalent of $98 million today. Oh, holy shit. Yeah. And it, at the time, it was actually one of the most expensive movies like ever made. And it was right in line with Steven Spielberg's 1941, which had come out the year before, which had a budget of about $35 million, which also stars which John Belushi. Because when I was looking up, I forgot about the, you know, the inflation rate. But when I was looking up this movie briefly just to see like the editor and cinematographer and stuff, I saw the budget and I was like, that's not that much. It's, a, it's quite a that's bit. A lot. 1941 Steven Spielberg's movie is going to come up again in a second, so hold on to that. We're going to talk about after they've wrapped it, but before they've released. So they have a two and a half hour cut of the Blues Brothers, which if you go on Amazon Prime, you can find an unrated version and then like the original theatrical release. For this, we all watch just like the the theatrical release to talk about like what the audience saw. Anyway, Lou Wasserman takes this two and a half hour cut over to theater owners to show them the screening and none of them like it. What? They considered it, quote, a black movie. And thought white audiences would not like it. Because oh. it had R&B audience, artists. So Wasserman is furious that this is not going as planned. And he goes to Landis and he's like, okay, they already don't like this. And this is two and a half hours. Please cut this shorter. So Landis cuts off like 20 minutes of it. So it's like just over two hours at this point. But Wasserman's still stressed because Ted Mann, who owns a bunch of like the big movie theaters in LA, wasn't about it at all. He hates it. And Wasserman goes, hey, Landis, here's Man on the phone. And Man says, Mr. Landis, we're not booking the Blues Brothers in any of our national or general theaters. We have a theater in Compton where we'll book it, but certainly not in Westwood. This this is so weird. It's so stupid because when you watch it now, it's like, look at these silly guys do these silly things. And for them to be like, oh, this is this is a race thing. This is black. It's like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. The Nazis like drive off. Of, they fly over buildings. Yeah. It's so funny. Well, my thing is like in this time period, it's fucking John Belushi to have a movie theater. Be like, we're not going to play it. It's, it has John Belushi. You fucker. You we'll can't. talk about that in just a second. Oh shit. Okay. Yeah. So Shuts man is not about <laughs> man is not about this at all. And then Landis goes, well, why won't you book it in Westwood or any of the other theaters? And Mann says, because I don't want any blacks in Westwood. Oh, gee, okay. That's, that oh. is what we call racism. It's not even that, like, I think my the audience won't like it. It's I don't want to attract. Yeah. Yeah, and Mann said that oh. white audiences wouldn't see Blues Brothers, quote, because mainly of the musical artists you have, not only are they black, they are out of fashion. Out of fact, Ray Charles, who is that? Aretha Franklin, I don't know who that is. So it must be out of fashion. So originally, when they started making this movie, again, Belushi and Aykroyd were like huge, specifically Belushi after Animal House. But by the time they were releasing this, Aykroyd and Belushi had left SNL. Now, they were some of the original first ever cast members of SNL. Right. They were like in the very first season, but they left the 1979 season. So marketability went down. And Belushi had just starred in Steven Spielberg's 1941, which was a huge commercial and critical bomb. Again, 
losing marketability. Actually, one of Belushi's friends who was a writer at SNL, and his name is Michael O'Donoghue, kid buttons that read, John Belushi, born 1949, died 1941. Because the movie sucked. So they're like, okay, before we're making this, we've got two absolute legends doing this. We've got a huge budget. Cool. By the time they're releasing it, we don't have two stars. This is ballooned out of control. Theaters won't show it. So instead of like about a normal release, which is like 1,400 theaters, the Blues Brothers released into 600 theaters, just under 600 theaters. Yeah. Thanks, racism. (laughs) So the movie opens June 20th, 1980, again, in just under 600 theaters. Wait a second. June 20th, 1980. You know what also released that day? Star Wars Episode Five. Never heard of it. <laughs> Empire Strikes Back, um, and it made four point eight million on its opening weekend, just behind Star Wars. And yeah, then um, yeah, you're going to be behind Star Wars. And overall, thanks specifically to the international box office, it ended up grossing a hundred and fifteen million, again against what became a twenty-seven million dollar budget. So it's, it's, it did work out. <laughs> it's fucking international stuff. Mm-hmm. It's always England. All the time, it's all always the... international stuff. It'll get you. Yep. And by get you, I mean like good kind of get you. Yeah. So while they were concerned about like the reviews because theaters wouldn't show it, overall, it was extremely well received among fans and critics alike at the time and even now. It's kind of achieved a cult status in yeah. today's society. And um, a couple of just quotes to kind of reflect on the impact it had. John Landis says, quote, Dan Aykroyd's passion for rhythm and blues and basically black American music, one of the things the movie did quite successfully successfully, was draw attention back to these great artists. And, you know, talk to James Brown or Aretha Franklin or any of these people, and they'll tell you that their careers were revitalized. And I'm proud of that. You know, I'm really proud of that. And Aretha Franklin said, it broadened my audience and certainly introduced people to me who were not aware of who I was. So... I think it's just like really cool that yeah. they went in with this love of R&B and just kind of like blues music in particular. And they kind of wanted to have these goofy characters, but like really highlight the people who made this music genre shine. And not only did they get a chance to like elevate them and kind of give them a space to do their thing, it introduced specifically white audiences to music maybe they didn't know before. Yeah, like it, I can only imagine the kind of joy you could feel if you go out to make a movie to show off the artists that you love and it ends up helping the artists that you love mm-hmm. and you know that like something you did genuinely helped the people that you care about. Yeah. That's got to be amazing. I know, right? It's it's so cool. Um, So I mentioned this briefly, but there was a sequel made in 1998. And John Landis and Dan Aykroyd teamed up for what is called Blues Brothers 2000, which introduced John Goodman as Mighty Mac McTeer. So they didn't actually, like, replace John Belushi's character. I think, like, it probably would have been way too painful for Dan Aykroyd to do that. Oh, yeah, because he's deceased at this point. Yes, he died in 1982. Um, Anyway, this one had a budget of $30 and it flopped horribly. And um, we don't talk about it. Mm. So there was a sequel. I ain't going to say a goddamn fucking thing about it then. Yep. I, I mean, I don't really know much besides that other than, yeah, like it, it, it did not do good. But that concludes the Blues Brothers. 
And before I turn it over to you guys to get your opinions, um, I've got a couple of just like kind of miscellaneous trivia to throw at you. First off, Belushi, again, because he was such a huge star at this time, he got paid double what Dan Aykroyd got paid. Damn. So Aykroyd got 250000 and Belushi got 500000 for this movie. The scene in which Henry Gibson, who plays like the Nazi party leader, taunts the, the, the protesters and, and does the Pledge of Allegiance to Adolf Hitler, that was taken almost verbatim from this documentary from 1975 called The California Reich, which is about the Nazi party in California. Mm. He also introduces his Nazi group as, quote, the American Socialist White People's Party, which when you do it as an acronym, it's ASWPP, which is asswipe. Yeah, I figured it out. I <laughs> figured it out. Yeah. Um, there's a deleted scene which explains why the Bluesmobile never dies and never seems to be like injured from its escapades. And it's because they park it under the L train station in a transformer room and kind of like absorbs the station's power. Trans- tra- transformer. Autobots. More than meets the eye. So there was that scene, but then when Landis was cutting it down, he was like, Nobody's gonna understand that this is what gives the blues mobile its power. Like, oh fuck it, we're cutting it. It's funnier just as an unspoken. It does what it does because it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, John Landis added in the um the whole scene at the diner where uh, Jake orders the four fried chickens and a coke because he watched John Belushi order four fried chickens and then eat it. So that happened, and he Wait, went hold. Hold the fucking phone. My man ate four fried My, chickens. Your Dude. man ate four fried chickens? And John Landis went, that absolutely has to be in the movie. I fucking love the bit of anything to drink. No. And a Coke. And a Coke. Yep. I was like, that's fu- that's fucking funny. Yeah, after yeah. he'd been asking for Coke like five <laughs> yeah. times. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Carrie Fisher, again, plays like the, myst- I think she's credited as like mysterious woman or mysterious mm-hmm. lady who is uh, Jake's ex-lover who falls for him once again and then gets duped anyway she was actually dating dan Aykroyd at the time and apparently they met when she was choking and he gave her the heimlich maneuver well yeah mm. how romantic uh, well because bras in space they constrict and yeah oh wow yeah what a reference what oh! what a callback anyway so they were dating and then during the filming of this they actually became engaged and dan Aykroyd. Per- proposed but they ended up calling it off and uh she went back to paul simon diamonds on the soul of his shoes the last bit of trivia i have is that this is aretha franklin's film debut and cap calloway's final film film performance whoa bookends Which we, we we commented on this while we were watching aretha franklin actually does a pretty decent job in this like her acting isn't like superb but it's uh-uh. pretty decent there's um the the drummer is not a good actor at all. Mm. You can see that like the first time he delivers a line. Just, but Aretha Franklin actually like is pretty decent. I like her. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's like absolutely hands down my favorite number. I already love Aretha Franklin as is. Um but seeing her boss around her man and then dance in a diner. Oh, I like Cab Calloway. She's got my heart. I like the funky dances he does. Uh, he holds uh, his arms out and he kind of spins. Girl boss? He... Girl boss. Girl boss. And that concludes up. my trivia for you guys. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you. What are your thoughts? What do you think? Because I think 
we had all seen this before, correct? I, I, I had oh, seen yeah. It. I had seen it once before. I was kind of younger. Twice before. Maybe um, three times. It was good, though. I really enjoyed it. And, I, you know, I'm willing to say I do consider it a musical. I did yeah. very much so enjoy it. Hell so yeah. I'm slowly. I enjoyed this musical. Through subliminal messaging. Yeah. Convincing yeah. you to like musicals, Mile. It's working. Slowly but surely, it's working. Uh, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I, again, I don't know if, again, I told you guys earlier before we were recording, I, I love, I thought it was so fucking funny whenever, not Mariah Carey, uh, Carrie Fisher <laughs> tries to murder the blues brothers yeah. and they just shrug it off like it well, didn't even happen huh, wonder what that was about i it was so fucking funny to me every single time <laughs> <laughs> they'd stand up and they go oh we're late and i'd go nah you goofy guys you, goofy guys. you didn't you care about the guys. thing that just happened and then even when like uh he's like pleading for his life and he's like i love you i love you please don't do this and then he immediately like just fucking dips I was like, you fuckers, you little bastard, Sticks out man. his glasses. Yeah, the first time you see him without his glasses, like, I I know. Uh, So, yeah, I really liked it. I felt bad for Twiggy, though. Who's she Twiggy? was the lady in the convertible who Dan Aykroyd. Elwood kind of hits on and is like, oh, we should meet in a motel. And right. then she waits at the motel for him and he's yeah. not there. Yeah. Stefan, what did you think? I think this movie's very funny. I think it's good. I love the music. Um, something we didn't talk about. I think the cinematography is so fun. Yeah, it is. The very beginning sure. of the movie when he exits the prison and there's just oh, a does. blanket of light behind him. Yeah. And he's just a silhouette and he's standing there all funny. He comes out really good. I mean, the bit in the nunnery where it's like these low angle shots shooting up the stairs and there's Jesus there and the lights. The way the nun just like floats around <laughs> yeah. and stuff. Like a the lot door of the, slams behind them without any help, yeah. A lot of the cinematography is very fun. A lot of high angles, he, a lot of low angles. Can I point out, that motherfucker went to prison with a used condom. Yeah. And they kept it. And they kept it. Which, by the way, if you didn't catch, that's Frank Oz as the officer who does that. Joke's on you. I don't know who Frank Oz is. <gasps> he's Mrs. Piggy. He's Yoda. <sighs> really? Yeah. Wait, he's Mrs. Piggy? Yes. What? Oh my goodness! You have so much. Oh, to learn. oh my god! I. Um, I but I yeah, the to... uh, sorry to, to jump back to what I was saying. I think the cinematography is extremely fun. Yeah, one of my favorite aspects, apart from just the bits. I love the jokes. I love the recurring toast bits. Um, with Wait, him, just bits. he's just trying to toast bread. He's trying to get toast. Oh yeah! And then yeah, when they're yeah. like getting the instruments he's yeah, trying to he's buy a toaster ryan wants to say something really bad i'm not gonna let her until i'm done um again the nazi flying off to the bridge is so funny. funny his expression is so funny just like <laughs> it's like he's realizing just how like messed up and unreal the situation is and he's like this isn't fair this isn't fair this shouldn't be happening and it shouldn't be and he drops you know 200 feet to his doom I want you to know. Um, I always loved you. I always loved you. Now, a lot of this is very quotable. You know, stuff oh, I like, mean, the bit where like, mission from God. Like, it's it's you know x amount of miles to yeah, Chicago. That's a great quote. If or, I could um, quote it without hey, you sleaze my bed. Um, I was just gonna say about the toast that yeah. when they're in Elwood's apartment, first of all, the whole bit is that any time that they like kind of cut to a wide, a train goes by. But oh, really? Yes, the trains are never ending there. 
Well, I knew they always happened. Yeah, yeah. Which, when he says, uh, so often you won't even notice. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. And then they like bring the audio down so that it does kind of like fade into the background. I was like, all right, I see you. I fucking see you. But also I was going to say about that scene where he's toasting the bread on this hanger that he bends. That's based on a real hack that you can use of like bending a hanger to toast bread. Hmm. Okay, should we rate this? Should we kind of? We should probably rate this. Let's uh, rate it. This, I'm going first. Okay, I'm going to give it seven point nine. Lordy Lord, flying Nazi cars. Seven point nine assassination attempts by jilted ex lovers. Yeah, out of ten, this movie has some of my favorite type of comedy, which is just stupid comedy. Yeah, where they just stupid things happen, erroneous, illogical things happen, and it's funny. I like it that way. Like the nun floating around and stuff. It's like, why? This is funny. Cause. Or, yeah. No, the fucking why, cause it's funny is probably my favorite type of joke. I think think it's the best explanation for anything. John Landis just cutting off the saxophone player's head. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's funny. Cause it's funny. I appreciate that. I love that. Like, this is a movie where I, like, was kind of giggling watching it. A lot of comedies I watch and I don't, like, giggle. I'm like, (laughs) oh, I get it. I get it, but this sounds like <laughs> look at him go. You know, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and the cinematography again, very fun. The music, fantastic. I like blues. I like this kind of music. I think it's great. I a, a grand old splendid time to sit back, relax, and just have some fun. Seven point nine. Miles, what about uh, you? I, it's gonna be a lot of echoing, Stefan. It's it's a funny fucking movie. Like it's just good. It's just a fun watch. Uh, again, I love all the bits with Carrie Fisher in it, um, just because of how goofy it is. She fucking blows up a building, and yeah, and everyone's just like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> like even the co- <laughs> it's so the funny. Bl- the Blues Brothers are like, "All right, whatever," and the cops are like, "What the fuck just happened?" Yeah, uh, I I'm gonna give this movie. I think this is probably like the easiest. Eight out of ten. Uh, I don't know why. Oh, I did chicken caged stages. Ooh, good one. Yeah, I was. I gonna, thought, we didn't talk about that a lot. I was gonna say seven point nine raw hides out of ten, but didn't do it. The idea that like they encourage people that was to throw bottle, even when they're doing a good That's job, they're gonna still say. throwing bottles. So they're throwing bottles when they're doing a bad job. They're throwing bottles when they did a good job. It's just they're going to throw bottles, apparently. <laughs> yeah. When they're like, why is there chicken wire here? It's because the fucking Patreons love throwing glass bottles, throw bottles. Love it. Good hobby. Stand it's, by if, your man. If I knew, if I went to a place and I knew that they encouraged me to throw glass I bottles. I can't either. Someone's going to nail me in the back of the head trying to throw it up on stage. Well, I was going to say, if I was a patron, I would throw a glass bottle. No, that's what I'm saying. I I would be a patron like up front and someone's going to hit me in the back of the head because they can't throw oh, a bottle. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. not doing that. <laughs> yeah. I'm not doing that. I don't trust people to be throwing bottles behind me. Um, I'm going to give this movie eight cartwheels on busted knees he, out of 10. He was really good at Go um, ahead give me an 8 out of 10. I don't know why I did 7.9. That was silly. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. Change change the rating this chart silly. here. Yeah, I mean not only is it a fun time, I think like we said, it's a musical. You get people who don't like musicals liking this movie because you, you've me. got, not only do you have musical numbers, but you have like 
police chases and car crashes and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Out of all the musicals I've seen, top musical. Yeah, so not only is it good for people who don't like musicals to begin with, but in doing research, I have a much deeper appreciation for this movie than I initially started out with because I knew that it was kind of a shit show and that John Belushi did a lot of coke and yeah. they messed up a mall a lot and all that kind of stuff. But knowing that like truly this came from a place of love and appreciation of R&B music and the fact that they wanted to elevate these artists that they held so dear and not only did they do so, but it helped their careers later on. That is so cool. Yeah, again, I I know I talked about it for uh, like a little bit, but that is insane. Like if I could make a movie that affected the people that I was inspired by in a positive way, that would be amazing. Yeah. I think I think that's beautiful because for me a lot of art and you know when people create art and they do things, a lot of who we are is our inspirations and we've just sort of um cultivated them within ourselves and they they come out whether we want to or not and those inspirations are very important to us and so to be able to um pay homage to that is is very important very beautiful and i i think it's just like incredibly unique that first of all this started out as an snl recurring bit where it wasn't even really comedy it was just because dan Aykroyd just and john belushi yeah, really wanted like to perform and like play with a band so it started off as a band and then they got an album and then the album did really well. And they said, okay, we can make a movie from this. And not only did they have a fun time wrecking cars and messing around in the city of Chicago, but yeah, they got to play music. And not only is it them just goofing off as music plays, but it's like good music. Yeah. And I think it's just like so incredibly unique um, of a movie. And for that reason, I have to give it the the, the 8 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Um, but a very good film, very good experience. It is a fun time. And it's got great music, and I think it just kind of leaves you in a good mood. So, um, happy one year takes it took. Yes, happy, yeah, happy, year. happy one year to our podcast. Uh, can't wait to see where we are next year and all the movies that we cover. So, again, mm-hmm. if you have any suggestions that you, of uh, films that you would like us to cover, please send us an email at thetakesitook at gmail.com. Uh, we'll give them a read and uh, hopefully cover them at some point in the future, hopefully in this next year. So thank oh, you all yeah. for listening. Uh, it has been an absolute treat to do this, and uh, we're not going to stop. So Nuh-uh. this is just the beginning. Where the the fucking bridge is folding up. Uh, John Belushi just told us that the car sucks. We're, and we're revving. We're revving. We're ready to go. Mm-hmm. And we might fall into the drink. We may fall onto the ground. But either way... The cigarette lighter needs to be fixed. Hey, Miles. Hey. What are we doing for the next hey, episode? What are we doing for the next episode? All right. This, this better be good. This next movie. Watch your tone. I ain't afraid of it. Yeah? I ain't afraid of this movie. I'm not afraid of I'm you excited. anymore. It's going to be Ghostbusters. Oh. Oh. We have Dan Aykroyd back to back. What a follow-up. <laughs> the Dan Aykroyd trilogy. Oh, yeah. Super exciting. It's going to be good. Uh, Ghostbusters, a, one, a lot of wonderful visual effects, a yeah. lot of wonderful practical effects. Uh, overall, a very fun movie. It's got... John Belushi will make an appearance. John Belushi in sure. it. Well, not really, but... Oh, uh, he's he's Slimer. Slimer. They modeled it after him. That's like one of the one things I know about what that. One of the cruelest game. things you could do. Yeah, he's in it. 
Yeah, he well, he was okay. So just, just the, this is a spoiler. He was supposed to be in it, yeah, and then he, he passed away. Kicked the bucket. They modeled Slimer after him, so. so he he's in it as a ghost. <laughs> yeah, so we'll mention him again next week. So Bill Murray's in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan Aykroyd. It, it was between this and Spaceballs. Oh, oh. we haven't done so, Mel Brooks. We have not done Mel Brooks yet, but we will at some point. So for sure. I'm gonna give a little in the future, probably you know after. Ghostbusters, I'll do Spaceballs. So, yeah, we're doing Ghostbusters. Cool. It's going to be great. Sheer warning for those, though. When the um, gremlin statue dog comes about, close your eyes. It's really scary. <laughs> it is really When the scary. eggs crack on the countertop? Really scary. Got me spooked. Oh, yeah. No, I the dog so- scared. The do- when we watched this movie as a kid and that dog came around, I'd be like, shut off. Shut, <laughs> shut up. Shut up. Get it out of here. But in the meantime, before the next episode, you can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter and on Instagram at the Takes It Took. Wow. And if you'd like us... Uh, to cover any movies in the future, make sure to send us an email at thetakesittook at gmail.com. Uh, and we look forward to another year of making podcasts for you guys. So, without further ado, stay safe, have fun, watch movies, and um, don't crash <clears throat> your car in Chicago. Bye. 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 I'm a snap man. Ho, 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 ho. Boom, boom.